Romans 8, beginning at uh, verse 31. Do have that open uh, in front of you. Tom Apreese Price was robbed and murdered by two young men in Kensal Rise, Kensal Green, in uh, 2006 on uh, January the 12th. Uh, his fiancée, Adele Eastman, as often the case, was asked to make a statement at the trial of his killers. Uh, this is what she said. Tom was my best friend, my soulmate. I adored him. I always will. I miss him more than I could ever describe. His beautiful heart, his brilliant mind, his big loving eyes, his gentle voice, his gleeful laugh and quirky sense of humor, his dancing, our chats, and the great fun we used to have together. I miss us. When we'd been together for four years, last October, Tom asked me to marry him. It was the most beautiful moment of my life. I said yes immediately through tears of joy. We were deeply in love and blissfully happy together. One of our friends wrote in his letter of condolence, the love between you was so infectious, it radiated outward and filled everyone around with warmth. We all need to know that we are loved. The Bible is absolutely clear at the heart of our needs is a relationship, a relationship of love with the God who made us. That is the greatest single need of every human being who has ever lived. And that's what you're needing this morning if you're not yet a Christian here. That's what we long for you to have. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And in one way, the Bible, it's not a, a set of rules or a philosophy of life. It's a love letter of God from, to, to, to his people. And in some ways, Romans is the, the high point of that love letter. And if you wanted a high point in Romans, Romans 8 would be the high point, the crescendo of love from God to us. And we've seen that he has done everything possible everything necessary to bring us into a relationship of love with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, how can we be sure? How can we be sure that God loves us now? How can you, sitting there this morning with your circumstances of life, with your suffering, or with your hardship, or with your insecurity, know that God loves you? Some people try to assure themselves of God's love by, by the way they live. They think as long as they're a generally nice person, then of course if there is a God, he'll, he'll love them. The problem is, isn't it, is that, that, that we can't be as good as we want to be, let alone as good as the way God wants us to be. Or, or am I the only person here this morning with regrets in the last 24 hours? Some people want to assure themselves of God's love through religious ritual. They think that maybe going to church or coming to a service or, or getting baptized, God loves me because maybe I've been to this building just about enough or I've done his special thing. The problem is that there are long periods when, well, religious ritual just seems a million miles away and so does God. 
Some people assure themselves that God loves them because they feel they've had a great spiritual experience. Maybe when they were on that conference gathered together with thousands of people and the worship band was extraordinary, they felt the love of God. But the problem is they can't recreate that in their front room week by week and the dry ice machine doesn't work. And therefore they don't feel that God loves them all the time. And one day they come back to their boring old church and it's just a bit bland by comparison. But you know what? God has a far better way of assuring us of his love. He does it through events in history, through the gospel, the good news about Jesus. He does it through things that are unchangeable because they actually happened. And he takes those unchangeable truths about Jesus and he writes them upon our hearts by his Holy Spirit. He shows us events that reveal his his character and show his commitment to us day by day. A commitment that we need to know as we live in this world. A world that is hard and that is hostile. And Paul wants to assure the suffering Roman Christians, Christians who maybe are beginning to divide because they're looking to themselves uh, rather than looking to the God who loves them, he wants to assure them of God's love. And so he answers three questions. Here's the first one. God is for us, he says. Who can be against us? God is for us. Who can be against us? Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, These things are what Paul has just outlined in verse 30. God's plan to save a people for himself. A plan in which God shouts, I am for you. And if God's on your side, if he's in your corner, if he's in your team, who, who can stand against you, says Paul? Who can stop the plan of the one who is as Gareth pointed out, created all things and sustains all things by his mighty power. Who can stop the one who brought the stars into being with a word? Who holds the atoms of the lily together in indescribable beauty? Who is going to stand in the way of his plan for us? And a plan which we saw in verse 30 ended with Christians being glorified. Made perfect in a perfect new world with perfect relationships with God and and all other people. But but how do we know that that God's going to remain for us? But because time and time again, I don't know about you, but time and time again, our conscience robs us of the assurance that God is for us, that he's on our side. Whether we feel that we've let him down because we've fallen into that failure, that sin again or whether we feel that he's let us down because that job didn't come off or that sickness hasn't been healed. We get this nagging doubt. Does God really care? It's the one that's been sown really since the beginning of human history by the devil himself. In Genesis 3, he he said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat Fruit from any tree in the garden. God doesn't care about you, Eve. He's a spoil sport. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. He's told you not to eat any of this delicious fruit. Don't trust him. Most people who aren't Christians think that that's the God who exists, the God who wants to cramp your style and ruin your fun. I remember doing a university mission and a couple of uh, lads who, uh, uh, they were rugby players, walked past the room where I was giving the talks and I heard one of them say to the other, what's the point of Christianity? You have to give away your life and you get nothing in return. 
But actually, that's not true. You see, God has given us everything. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Look, says Paul. Do you think if God has given up his one and only precious son for you, he's going to stop and not give you all that he's promised you? I mean, he's already given you the thing he most loves. The one who he has been bound with in love for eternity. The one who has never had a disagreement with his father in heaven. Never a harsh word. The one who has poured out his life in love. His only perfect son. Do you think he's going to stop loving you? Having paid the ultimate price for you? Around 90 years ago, John Griffiths ran a railroad bridge on, uh, the, over the Mississippi River in the United States. Uh, one day during the school holidays, he took his eight-year-old son, Greg, to play with him uh, in the, uh, the tower where he controlled the bridge controls from. They had lunch together, sitting on the banks of the river. And then about one o'clock, John heard the Memphis Express approaching. He looked around the control room and he couldn't see his son. He looked out the window and he saw Greg. He got caught in the enormous cogs that controlled the mechanism of shutting the bridge. And John realized he had a decision to make. The bridge lay open. The Memphis Express was approaching with hundreds of people on the train. And his own son lay in the middle of the mechanism that was the only way of controlling the bridge. So burying his face in his hand, he reached for the lever and shut the bridge. And killed his son. Now can you imagine getting off the train and saying to John Griffiths, you don't really care about me, mate, do you? You don't really love me, mate, do you? You're not that bothered about me, mate, are you? If God did not spare his own son, will he not give us all things? See, God's ongoing care for us is nailed into history. And you've got to understand, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, our confidence that God loves us is not based on what we feel. Oh, there are days when I don't feel that God loves me. It's not based on the help we get. There are days when the Christian's life seems to be total carnage. It's not based on on the fact that we're going to be healed from every serious illness. I've taken too many funerals of young Christians to believe that anymore. It's based on the total commitment he has demonstrated by giving us his one and only son. A death that guarantees our future. Because it's a death that achieves a wonderful status. You see, God is for us. Who can be against us? Secondly, God has justified us. Who can condemn us? Well, one of the primary ways that the, the, the devil uses to drag Christians down is he accuses us. He's, he's known as the accuser. So he whispers in, in the conscience of the struggling Christian, maybe this is you this morning, maybe this is what you've, you've heard. You're not good enough. No, no, really you're not. You failed again. I mean, how can God love you when you've done that? If they knew here you'd done that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't greet you with a smile. Sometimes it's memories of past sin. Most of the time we give, give him more than enough ammunition with our present sin. The result's the same. Our certainty in God's love is shaken. Look at what Paul says in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
You're a Christian not because you chose God, because he chose you. And he didn't choose you because you've got potential or because you're a better person. He simply chose you. He chose you because he is love and he chooses to bring people to himself. It was entirely his work, said Paul, to justify you. We've seen this word justify so many times in Romans, but can I tell you now that if justification is not written across your heart, your life will be a misery. Because justification is the truth that God has done everything to make you right in relationship with him despite yourself. He has declared you innocent though you are guilty. He has taken your punishment though you deserve it. And how is it fair to do that? Well, back in Romans 3, Paul showed us. He said it's fair because his one and only son had your sin, your disobedience poured onto him at the cross. He took God's righteous anger in your place. So now God treats you as though you had the perfect life of Jesus. You are justified. And when that is written across your heart, there is no greater freedom. There is no greater joy. Because you don't have to prove yourself anymore. So different from, from every other of the religion in the world, every other philosophy of life. There are Muslims today praying across the world, desperate that Allah would accept them because they've got to do enough. There are Buddhists trying to meditate and discipline themselves into nirvana. It's all by their effort. There are Jews nodding repeatedly at the wailing wall in Jerusalem, desperate that their prayers would deal with their sin. That there are Roman Catholics piling in and out of Mass and in and out of the confessional, going from guilt to I've done enough to guilt to I've done enough to guilt to I've done enough again. But the good news of the Gospel is God has done it all for you. He has chosen you and He has justified you. Our culture, our culture sets such a, a high level to be loved, doesn't it? Don't you find that? We have to do so much in our culture to be loved. You've got to have a, a perfect body, waxed, shaven. People Photoshop themselves as they go up on Instagram so, so that they can present something they feel is lovable. I was, I was reading today that, that, that some young people are dropping out of dating websites like Tinder but because they're so fed up of meeting people that look nothing like the person that they saw on the website. On the app, it's called catfishing. I'm so insecure about who I am, I've just got to, I can't even put my picture online. I was uh, reading in Rachel Jones's brilliant book, Is This It? By the way, it's not just for 20 year olds. If you're not totally secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to read that book. That'll be all of us then. Is This It? It was talking about the, the, the problem in, in our, our culture that uh, we have with imposter syndrome. All the time we're afraid that someone's going to discover we're actually totally rubbish at, at, at our job or we're totally rubbish at relationships or we're totally rubbish as a parent. We feel like an imposter, totally having to pretend who we are all the time. Well, the great news of, of Romans 8 is that the, because God has justified you, you no longer have to pretend. And, and how has he done it? Well, have a look at verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. You can't even condemn yourself. That's the thing about the word no one, isn't it? I mean, are you in anyone? 
If the, no one, that's not anyone, is it? That's you as well. No one can condemn you. No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, day by day we condemn ourselves because we look inward and we see what we're really like. But, but what Paul is saying is, no, you need to look outward and see what Jesus has done for you and you cannot be condemned. Again, if you're not a Christian here yet, I hope you realize that. It's not that we think we're better people than you. In fact, I hope your Christian friends are the first to admit to you that they are terrible people. So terrible that Christ Jesus had to die for them. Did you see that in verse 34? That's the first reason I know I'm not condemned. Christ died for me. And then he was raised to life. God declared his death at the cross a finished work. That's what the resurrection says. It says, there is nothing more to be paid for. You are now totally right with me. But more than that, and I think this is one we miss, more than that, he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So Christ was then raised and now he's in in the throne room of heaven and his job interceding is not that he's praying for you his job is to stand and maintain your relationship with God in the old testament they had a temple and the priest would go in for the people to to intercede in their relationship with God he'd take in uh, the blood of an animal he sacrificed and he'd go into the holy place before the altar and his job was to if you like stand between God and the people and say look this animal has died and therefore Lord look favorably upon your people and that's the picture here but the difference is it is the perfect son of God with the the nail wounds in his hands and his feet who is at the right hand of his father and he's constantly maintaining your relationship with God it's as though, say, between now and lunch, imagine this entirely fictitious situation, you lose your rag with your wife or your children or someone you love, and you're thinking, oh, how could I go through a sermon on God's love and come out and behave like that? But what's happening in heaven is the son is standing before the father and saying, he is righteous in my sight. He is righteous before you because I died for him. He's actively doing that every moment of every day. So for your relationship with God in any way to be changed, it's not just that you have to uproot the cross out of history and get rid of Jesus' crucifixion. It's you have to rip Jesus ascended out of heaven where he is pleading constantly on your behalf before the Father. The living, risen Lord Jesus is actively every moment of every day maintaining your status with God. Now, if you can pull that off, you can't pull that off, can you? That's the assurance we're to have. You see, in the courtroom of our hearts, often the verdict is guilty, we look within. But in the courtroom of heaven, the verdict is always innocent because Christ died for me. Nothing can change the status of a Christian. Nothing. We are utterly certain of God's love. You see, you don't have to make yourself someone you can love. You don't have to make yourself someone God can love. You can admit, actually, you are someone who is pretty unlovable. But no, you are totally loved. Now and forever. Because here's the last thing. God has loved us. Who can change that? 
God has loved us. Who can change that? Look at verse 35 with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? It's not an idle question from people who go through life without a care in the world. No, the reality of God's love doesn't minimize problems. In fact, quite the opposite. What Paul is doing in verse 35 is he's listing some of the things that you might actually be more likely to experience because you're a Christian. You align yourself with the one, the Lord Jesus, who loved the world and was tortured and crucified for it as a result. And so Paul says in in verse 36, he quotes from an Old Testament psalm. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's Psalm 44. And in in the psalm, God's people are saying, we're suffering, Lord. We're suffering for you. And you know what? There's no reason. We're following you faithfully. So often in the Old Testament, God's people suffer because they desert him. But in Psalm 44, they're being faithful. They're walking in obedience, and they're suffering for it. And that is the life of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 15, in the Gospel of John, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If you follow the King of love who was crucified, you will know his love, but life will be cross-shaped. But as we live that life, we know a God who makes us more than victors through times of trial. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things, in in trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger, and even in sword, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not your courage do you know when people say that they, they, they see a Christian's experience suffering and they think, I could, I, could never, I could never go through that as they've gone through it? But it's not your courage that does that. And it's not your faith that sustains you. And it's not your strength. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, in the midst of, of persecution or of, of suffering or of pain or of sadness, we feel far from strong, do we? We feel far from conquerors. But God will more than get us through. He will will bring us through suffering in glorious victory. In fact, do you know that that expression, more than conquerors? It's it's one word in the original. and, And Paul made it up. In writing this letter, he made it up. He was trying to get to a word that expressed how enormously powerful the love of God was in getting you through all the crud of the world. You know, he sort of was going, oh, I'm gloriously triumphant, enormously magnificent. I've got to come up with a word that does this. We're utterly winners through Jesus. And he comes up with this word, which is sort of like more than conquerors. It's a bit like sort of the spiritual version of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's this sort of word that bursts with, it's just beyond comparison, the love of God in getting you through the rubbish of the world. Sahar Shafi is a Pakistani woman. She was uh, trying to convert a a colleague, Naveed, who was a Christian man, to to Islam. But he took her to church. She says, I shared Islam with Naveed and wanted to convert him. 
but instead I realized my life was empty without Jesus. So here's family were not aware of her conversion, but sometimes when they found her, say, reading some psalms, singing psalms from the Bible to herself, they'd beat her. They once found her reading a Bible, they ripped it up when they discovered it. In January 2004, Sahir and Naveed were secretly married and broke all ties with Sahir's family. And after the birth of their daughter in January 2005, Sahir contacted her parents and told them she'd married a Christian. Uh, One Sunday evening, a month later, a large mob attacked the convert's home. They fled for their lives. Uh, They resettled elsewhere in Karachi. And she called her parents from a local payphone and asked them to stop harassing her. After hanging up, Sahir's parents called back the call box's owner and explained that their daughter had converted to Christianity. Later that night, while Naveed had gone out to check his emails at his internet cafe, the call box owner forced his way into Sahir's home. He told Sahir he was going to punish her for committing the unpardonable sin of apostasy, and he raped her at gunpoint. Do you know what this young mother said? It's not a joke to change religions. We've fallen in love with Jesus. How could we betray him? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Her focus wasn't on herself, on her strength, but on him and his love. A love that is historically visible and rooted. A love that has acted to make us God's children. A love that cannot be changed because they cannot be undone. Now, if she had focused on her experience of this world, then how would she know God loved her? What had following Jesus got her in this world? The hatred of her family, the violence of her mob, and raped because she was a Christian. But if we focus on what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we focus on the certainties that we have in him, well then we can be confident in the face of anything. Do you see what Paul says in verse 38? For I'm convinced, I'm utterly convinced that neither demons, neither neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. Because it was initiated by him, it is sustained by him, it is written on your heart by him, it is irresistible. Neither illness nor bereavement, neither the bullying boss or unemployment, neither your failures in the past nor your fears for the future, neither yourself nor anyone else will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So so let me ask you this morning, do you know this love? Is this the love that consumes your life? Is this the love that is written upon your heart? If you don't know this love, tell, tell me afterwards of the people who have died for you, despite the way you've rejected and ignored them. Tell me afterwards of the people who've hunted you down and loved you despite the way you've run away from them and mistreated them. 
Tell me of the people who, who love you constantly, however you behave towards them. Tell me the people who will never condemn you, but will take upon themselves all the pain that you show in the way you treat them. Tell me of a love so secure that it brings you through every horror of this world into the glory of a world after death that is perfect. Tell me of your deepest and best experience of love. And I will tell you of the love of God shown us in his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And as Christians, as those who know this love, if if you're here this morning and you are secure in this love, this is the place you need to look, isn't it? Oh, I, I can't change your circumstances. I can't tell you that that next scan is going to be better than the last. I can't tell you that life will go on happily into your 80s. I can't tell you that the the other young people at school will stop giving you grief because you dare to go to the CU. I can't tell you that any number of parenting seminars will sort out the kids that you're struggling with. I can't tell you that it's worth giving up everything in this life to follow this Lord Jesus unless you know this love. That's the one thing I can tell you about. It's the one thing that is certain, the one thing that cannot be taken away, and it is the most precious thing there is. God is for us. Who can be against us? God has justified us. Who can condemn us? God has loved us. Who can change that? Nothing. No one. Not even yourself will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's have a moment's quiet together.